There are like eight different things I wanted to talk about today. And to be honest, I'm struggling to narrow it down to one focus, and I'm just going to talk about everything. What really happened was that I recorded an interview last week, which will be published next week with Janice Goldmintz of TalkAboutAging.com. Janice is a gerontologist, and not only is she taking care of her aging parents, she does a lot of work to help families deal with caregiving challenges, and she does a lot of education on the subject. But I wanted to talk to her about caregiver burnout. I had a great time talking to her, and the conversation highlighted a bunch of things in real life that relate back to the Laban system, the system that I use to analyze movement. And anytime that happens, I feel like my brain is exploding a little bit, seeing all of the connections and applications for the Laban system. If you are new to the podcast and aren't familiar with the Laban system, you can go back to my website and click on the About LMA button. Uh, there's some more information there about the Laban movement analysis framework and principles, or you can go back and listen to earlier episodes of the podcast where I go through and explain pieces of the framework. Today, I want to talk about one, the arc of life, not the circle, the arc. There's an arc of physicality and independence, and I have thoughts on it. Two, generational gestures. Three, the cycle of exertion and recuperation and balancing that cycle so that it's effective. I think that's it. Also, I need to tell you all that I have a dog on my lap um, and he is wiggling uncontrollably and chewing on a chewy. So if you hear weird noises in the background, that's what's up. The Lion King brought the phrase, the circle of life to my attention in the mid nineties. It was 1994 and I was probably in like seventh or eighth grade. If you weren't alive in 1994, there were no smartphones very few cell phones, and only the select few had access to dial-up internet on AOL. So while today's middle school kids may scoff at seeing an animated film in the theater, in 94, there was nothing better to do. I honestly don't know how The Lion King has aged. From my understanding, the animals that were used as models were treated well, but it's possible that there are cultural references that haven't aged well. It wouldn't be the first old Disney movie to need a disclaimer. I also watched Peter Pan growing up, although I wasn't old enough to see that one in the theaters. And then I rewatched it a couple of years ago, and I was absolutely horrified. Horrified enough that the DVD accidentally ended up in the Goodwill pile. The same with Snow White and several others. But I digress. I, I didn't really want this to be a commentary on Disney movies. There are just still a lot of things in those movies that I was oblivious to as a kid. But now that I'm an adult, I can't unsee them. Now, I understand that those movies were a product of their time. I'm just saddened that in our society, it was ever acceptable to be that insensitive. So if The Lion King is offensive to anyone, I apologize for the reference. Oh my God, can you tell how traumatized I am? Anyway, one of the popular songs in The Lion King is The Circle of Life. I understand the premise, the full circle from birth to death, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. But the more I ponder life, the more I think about it as an arc, 
at least in terms of the physicality of the body. We are born helpless, needing care constantly, diaper changes and bottle feeding, car seats and strollers. Slowly, we gain independence and peak at some point around midlife. Then joints start to get creaky, bladders start to get leaky, uh, and we gradually lose our independence until, again, we need constant care, and then we slip off into the afterlife. The beginning and the end of that arc look eerily similar, and that's what I want to call your attention to today. Not only is this an interesting phenomenon in the body, but also caregiver burnout can happen while you're parenting your kids or you're parenting your parents. So finding ways to rest and recuperate are a necessity. Now, I can't account for every mother's experience, but I can account for my own. My husband and I, in our youthful stupidity, planned on two children. We thought we'd get our feet on the ground, do a little traveling, and then have two kids, you know, two or three years apart. Within our first year of marriage, I was pregnant with our oldest. I had a fairly easy pregnancy. I wasn't plagued by morning sickness or debilitating back pain or any of the more serious conditions that befall pregnant women. Um, and for that, I am eternally grateful. I held all my pregnancy weight in my belly. People actually told me to my face that I, quote, didn't even look pregnant from the back. Don't ever say that to a pregnant woman. In fact, commenting on a pregnant woman's body or any woman's body is generally inappropriate. Just don't. I guess holding all my pregnancy weight in the front was good until the third trimester came around and I needed to roll over in bed, having lost all connection into my core, as well as the flexibility to rotate my spine, trying to roll over in the middle of the night was an event. I actually had to sit completely up to get over to my other side. Needless to say, I wasn't getting a lot of sleep. Eventually, the oldest was done cooking and graced us with her presence one Sunday morning in fall. You'd think that after birthing a child, a sizable meal and a well-deserved nap are in order, but no. Instead, I had a rush of adrenaline and jello pudding from the nurse's station, and I haven't slept well since. It isn't really the kid's fault, though. That's mostly a product of my anxiety, so we'll just leave that there. I had just finished potty training our first when the second was born. I rejoiced for all of two weeks as I carried a normal-sized handbag instead of a diaper bag the size of a small state stuffed with diaper-changing accessories. This time we had a boy and then two more, each 18 months almost to the day after the previous. There was one summer when all three of the boys were in diapers. There were a lot of small humans in my house that pretty much needed constant care. I didn't have the luxury of not working, nor could we afford daycare, so I worked and simultaneously raised the kids. It was an adventure. We're not getting into mom wars here. I don't care if you work in the home or out of it. I'm just going to say that raising kids is a full-time job. We developed a very efficient evening routine for the little ones. We'd run a bath, put one kid in to wash up, another brushed his teeth at the sink, and yet another had to go potty or at least sit on the potty. Then everyone would rotate a station out of the bath and onto the sink for clean teeth off the potty and into the tub. You get the picture. When the youngest boy was about five, our youngest daughter came to live with us. There's about a two-year age difference between the youngest two, so now we had a full-on pack. Five kids in a nine-year span. Nate and I both found our coping mechanisms. After we came home from work and the kids were in bed, he would play video games, and I would go to the grocery store for hours and wander each aisle in unaccosted bliss. 
It was not the most glamorous way to keep my sanity, but it worked for me at the time. Traveling would have to wait. So would saving money and gaining sanity and lots of other things. But here's the thing with kids. You pour your heart and soul into them constantly for years and years, and they build independence, move out of your house, in theory, and start building their own lives. There is a light at the end of the tunnel. I was exhausted and broke, running on chicken nuggets and coffee and working my ass off to help make ends meet, but all of my kids were healthy and are on track to live as independent adults, contribute to society, and vote. Dear God, everybody vote. That's not the case for every parent, but it is the case for many. We help our children grow, traveling up the arc of life. On the other side of that arc is the end-of-life care. Slowly, the people we care for lose independence until their life is over. One day, when my mother had been in hospice care for several months, I sat with her while my dad went on a grocery run. We were very lucky that my dad and my sister were well able to care for my mom throughout her hospice period. They had great insurance and an army of excellent hospice workers to help. I live down the street and I was there as often as possible, but I also work full time and am raising the aforementioned pack of children. So I really only played a tertiary role. That being said, I was always happy to mom sit. Watching someone you love decline is heartbreaking. But I found that throughout the process, I had an overwhelming feeling of gratefulness. I'm grateful for 38 years of memories with my mom. I'm grateful she laid the foundation for the strong relationship we've always had. Grateful for the example of how to be courageous, intelligent, and loving. Grateful for all the life lessons she taught me. Even in that afternoon of mom sitting as she lay next to me, kind of mumbling to herself, she was teaching me. Not only was she showing me how to exit this world with grace and love, should I be lucky enough to live as long as she did, but she was also teaching me about the tail end of that arc of physicality. When each of my kids was born and drew their first breath, they became part of a greater existence, taking in the oxygen that every other being thrives on. I watched as each of them learned to reach for me, sit up on their own, crawl, walk, and run. They are now physically independent humans, fully connected with all of the patterns of total body connectivity, <clears throat> but they're all still adolescents. So they're still growing and solidifying those patterns and working their way up to the apex of that arc of physicality. At some point in life, we start to slide down off that apex. That's what I was witnessing in my mother. Sometimes the descent starts with a chronic injury that slowly takes away a measure of our physical ability. Other times it's an acute injury that leaves us in physical therapy, working to recover the range of motion and strength that the injury took away. Whatever the reason, we start to decline from the apex of full physical ability. And with the loss of physical ability, we lose a bit of our independence. Mom had really started to decline the previous fall. She went to the hospital with debilitating back pain and she came home to hospice care. Her pain was well-managed with lots of drugs, but we all knew that the point of hospice care is not the same as physical therapy. Physical therapy helps you back up the arc of physical independence. Hospice care helps you descend in as much comfort as possible. Over the holidays, mom was still able to get up and around a little bit. We have some great pictures from that Christmas. Uh, she even made it downstairs in a fancy outfit for Christmas dinner. 
but she was most comfortable in bed with her book or her needlepoint or a TV show. Bit by bit, her body was giving away. Once she moved to the bed, her hand and eye coordination diminished and getting through a row or two of her needlework became increasingly more difficult and frustrating. The pain meds made her more sleepy and sitting up and staying awake for a chapter of Harry Potter or an episode of, uh, actually, I have no idea what she was watching, but she was definitely working her way through the Harry Potter books. It, it became impossible. She could no longer sit up by herself and hospice finally brought in a hospital bed so that she would be more comfortable. One day while I was with her, she needed a drink of water and I helped her hold a sippy cup to her lips and take a few slow sips, just as I had helped my kids when they were toddlers, except they were learning how, and she was forgetting. Asking her arms and legs to do her bidding was a dream of the past. Eventually, she took her last breath and slipped away from the world she had lived in for over 80 years. She had a long, blessed life. In her last months, she gave me the most precious gift. She asked me to take a pair of earrings that she loved and a vase that she had treasured for decades and I had admittedly envied for years. But these pale in comparison to the gift of being able to be with her and help her through this. It's a gift to watch a child grow. As a movement analyst, I have deep respect and fascination for how the human body develops and moves. Watching a baby progress from the fetal position to holding their head up and then reaching out for a loved one is miraculous. Growing moments like this are treasured by parents and caregivers. We celebrate the climb up the arc, but struggle to accept the loss of independence on the other side. Our society mourns and laments death and the preceding loss of independence, but I tried to look at it with a different lens. Each time I helped mom with a drink of water or a spoonful of soup, rather than lament the loss of her independence, I am grateful for the opportunity to help. She dedicated years and years of her life helping my sisters and I learn and grow, and it was our opportunity to give back. The most interesting moment of that day is sharp in my memory. When she wanted a drink of water, getting the sippy cup to her mouth was impossible, but she didn't struggle at all when she reached out to run her fingers through my hair. Those two wordless moments say everything about her. She would go the extra mile to show love to people. I hope I grow up to be just like her, but I am afraid I'm quite a different person. People tell me I look like her, and I just don't see it. There are mannerisms that I adopted from her, movements that she used expressively and inadvertently taught to me, movements that parents do with regularity that kids just pick up without being purposefully taught. Mirror neurons, people. Mirror neurons. She used to raise her eyebrows and then tuck her chin in a distinctive way. That combination of movements lives in my repertoire, too. That will be on the Facebook group this week, so stay tuned. Speaking of the Facebook group, the Itting's Hand is a generational movement, and that's actually already up on the page for your viewing pleasure. Another thing I copied from my mom was a sweet thing she used to do to entertain her grandkids called Creepy Mousy. I know that sounds slightly terrifying, but it was so sweet. Mom would lean into a little one's ear and make sweet little kissing noises and then crawl her fingers up their arm and tickle their neck. That one I purposefully adopted because each time she did it for my kids, they giggled with delight. Now, let's take all of that and talk about exertion and recuperation and balance. 
A couple of episodes ago, I promised an episode dedicated to balance. That's still in the works. In fact, I have half of it written and it's on my to-do list. So it's coming. I'm just not done yet. Exertion and recuperation are a principle of movement, but for sure you can see it all over the place in everyday life. After you run, you stretch. The run is the exertion. The stretch is the recuperation. Spatially, if you reach forward, right, and high in your kinesphere, to recuperate, you go to the opposite place in space, which is back, right, and deep. I will make a video for this and post it on the Facebook group. So if what I just said doesn't make sense, don't sweat it. Just come on over to the Facebook group and you can watch it. We also see the cycle of exertion and recuperation in how each of us travels along the continuum of each effort element. You accelerate and then recuperate by decelerating and vice versa. You recuperate from being direct by being flexible. You recuperate from increasing pressure by harnessing decreasing pressure. The trick is to balance out the forces of exertion and recuperation. If you just run and never stretch, your body will say no thanks and your running career will be really short. If you take a long run and a quickie stretch, you haven't balanced out your exertion and recuperation and you might be sore because of it. In a caregiving situation, whether you're caring for kids at the beginning of the arc of physicality or a loved one at the end of their life, you have to find a balance of exertion and recuperation. You can't expect to care for someone 24-7, 365. You have to take time to relax and take care of yourself too. Admittedly, this is where things can get tricky. Having caregiving help is a privilege not afforded to all. Not everyone has good insurance or a support group. This situation magnifies the stark reality that in our societies, many people cannot afford caregiving help and must do all of the work themselves. It isn't really the goal of this specific episode to tackle social inequalities. I'm not saying it doesn't relate to movement or that it shouldn't be tackled because it does and we should, but it deserves its own episode and much more research than I have currently done. If you are raising kids or caring for parents, even if you can't take a whole day off or hire someone to come in to help, it's worth it to ask a friend or a neighbor to help so that you can recuperate. Just being able to spend 15 extra minutes wandering through the grocery store or taking a walk outside will help you come back refreshed. Don't do the stereotypical mom thing where you give 100% to your kids and your partner and you feel guilty for taking time to yourself. Your kids need to learn that it's important to be able to relax, and you can show that to them by example. If you give away 100% of yourself all the time, you are showing them that you aren't important, and you are. I'm going to level with you here. I am really only a good mom for four hours a day. After that, I need to walk the dogs, run an errand, go take a bath or read a book or something. Now all my kids are in school, so for the most part, it's okay for me to max out at four hours, except on Sunday. Ever since COVID, oh, I'll, I'll get back to COVID in a minute. Ever since COVID, we've all been home together on Sunday. Newsflash, Sunday is longer than four hours. I found that I was really getting short with my kids early Sunday afternoon every week, which isn't really what I want them to remember me for. So now I plan my grocery shopping trip for Sunday afternoon. I spend the morning with my family, and then I take the early afternoon to recuperate. And the kids are all really excited that I bring food home with me when I come back. Win-win. Now I realize that four-hour limit should have been a problem over COVID quarantine, but it wasn't. Um, I can't say exactly, but this is my theory and it involves exertion and recuperation. 
We live in a society that currently values extroversion over introversion, and most of the seven of us are introverts. Where we fall on the spectrover on the spectroversion, ooh, <laughs> let's try that again. Where we fall on the spectrum of introversion, there we go, um, varies, but we're all across that line. After years of spending time with lots of other people at school, at work, at family gatherings, at church, we were just all spent. We'd been exerting ourselves so much to conform to an extroverted society that we hadn't really had the chance to fully recuperate. Quarantine was amazing for my family, and we're closer because of it. So I really don't know how my four-hour limit was magically suspended for the period of quarantine, but I like to apply movement theory to everything, which at this point you probably already know. So that's my theory. Folks, this is what it's like to live in my head. That's all for today. If you have a moment, please leave me a review on whatever platform you are listening on. It helps me with the all-powerful algorithm. Uh, and come on over to the Facebook group. It's, uh, it's a fun bunch of people, and it's free, so bring friends. 